You're listening to the Nassau Bay Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that seeks to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus in order to make disciples who serve their community and spread the gospel to the nations. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to uh, where we're going to be for the next several months, and that is the book of James. And so as you're turning there, just uh, keep in mind, anytime you read a book, or especially a book in, in the Bible, but any book, it's always good to know something about the author. That gives us some perspective, it gives us some insight into what the author is talking about, what he's trying to communicate to us, if we understand something about the author of the book. Well, this one's very obvious, the author is James. We'll talk about him in a moment, but uh, how many of you like baseball? We have any baseball fans in here? Hold your hand up. Okay, good. So you'll enjoy this illustration. When I was in college, it was after my freshman year, and I'd gone home for the summer, and um, I wanted to improve my hitting. And so I began to look and talk to some people and, and found out there were two books I needed to read. One was called The Science of Hitting by Ted Williams, the Hall of Famer, one of the greatest hitters in Major League history. And so I got that book and I began to read it. And then there was another book by a man by the name of Charlie Lau. Most of you probably never heard of Charlie Lau. He was a hitting coach for several teams and wrote a book called The, the Art of Hitting 300. You know, baseball is one of the only sports that if you fail seven out of ten times, you can still make it to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> These two books, the reason I chose them is because I knew the authors. I knew their reputation. I knew the men. I'd watched them play. I'd heard the stories of, of how they coached. And they both had coached in the major leagues. One was a hitting coach, and he coached several Hall of Fame uh, batters. Tony Gwynn uh, was, was one of those who he had coached, Charlie Lau had, and made it to the Hall of Fame. And George Brett uh, was one that he had coached. Some of those names may ring a bell. But, but what was important was I knew these men were not just theorists, but they were practitioners. They understood what they were talking about. They were proven. Anytime I pick up a book or about church or about the ministry of the church or the expansion of the church, I don't want to hear what somebody in a classroom says. I want to hear from a practitioner, someone who's doing it, someone who is serving the Lord, somebody who is, is proven. And so as we look at the identity of James, I think it will help us as we go through this book verse by verse, it will help us grasp and understand something about the message he's trying to communicate to us through the Holy Spirit, but also what he was communicating in that day to those Jews, Jewish believers who had been dispersed because of persecution. And so with that in mind, this morning we're going to look at a whopping one verse. Now don't get worried, we're going to cover more than one verse the rest of the time. But this morning, I believe it's important for us to look at this first verse. It's often overlooked in most of the epistles, most of the books of the Bible, we kind of skip over the introduction part. James's introduction is, is very simple. So the first thing we're going to notice this morning is the identity of James, the, the author of this book. So in James 1, verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Okay, that's, that's all we're going to look at this morning in James. Just those words, but how rich these words are. 
So he begins by saying, James, a servant of God. Now, as we look at this, there are three options in the New Testament of who James is. There's James, the brother of John, the, the sons of Zebedee. As we recall, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and also in Mark 1, Jesus called those disciples to, to be fishers of men in both instances. Uh, you saw Peter and Andrew, then you see James and John. They were fishermen. But I don't believe it is this James because he was martyred early on in Christian history. Then there was another James, James the son of Alphaeus, who's also an apostle. James, the brother of, of John, was an apostle. They're listed as the apostles. But this James is, virtually disappears before and after, just after the resurrection. You hear nothing more about him as an apostle. So that leaves one other James, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus. You say, why is he a half-brother? Well, because they had different fathers, right? Same mother, different father. And so I could say today, Cedric, you and I are brothers of another mother, right? That's right. We've got different fathers, but our different mothers, but the same father. And so we see this as being James, this is the brother of Jesus. He was also called James the Just. Now, some who come out of the Catholic Church would argue because they don't believe that Mary had any other children. She remained a virgin her entire life. And so that would uh, shoot that theory uh, away because we also see that brothers are mentioned later in one of the Gospels. So we know that there were other brothers and sisters that that were part of Jesus's family. And so here we find James the just. Some have described him, as you read through the book of James, as we go through it, you'll see why. They've described him as the Amos of the New Testament because of his prophetic words, because of what he says, what he teaches. But before the resurrection of Jesus, we see nothing really about James that gives us any indication that he was a believer. In fact, just the opposite. We find in, in John chapter 7, as we find uh, at a festival, the family of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, it says this, So his brothers said to him, speaking of Jesus, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Not, not us, your disciples, your disciples. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says, John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his family believed in him. And then in Mark's gospel, Mark uh, echoes this distrust or dislike or confusion about Jesus by his family. In Mark chapter 3, we find the gospel writer there speaking about Jesus, beginning in verses 20 through 32, or 22. Then he went home, speaking of Jesus. The crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, you imagine this, the family watching and witnessing these crowds coming around him, they went out to seize him. They went out to get Jesus. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So you see what his family thought about him. Now, I want us to think for a moment, could you imagine growing up in the house with Jesus? 
Could you imagine being his younger brother, James? Why can't you be more like your brother? James, why do we have to tell you three times to clean up your room? But Jesus always does it the first time. Can you imagine growing up with that pressure on you? You think you've got sibling rivalries. Just imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother. Jesus is always perfect. He never does anything wrong. How many of you have heard that or said that before about your brothers and sisters? But then we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul in that chapter about the resurrection, the Bible begins to list the people that Jesus appeared to. And it makes a very clear distinction for whatever reason to help us understand maybe that James came to a place where he believed. And we obviously know that he was a believer because he wrote this, this letter. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, it says, begin, well, back up to verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Well, this couldn't be the other two apostles because they are in that group of apostles. But this signifies and singles out James, which most believe to be, and I believe to be, his brother. We also find in Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Peter went to Jerusalem to give a report to the council and to the church at Jerusalem to say to them that Gentiles are now believing. And we looked at this when we looked at the, at the letter to the Galatians. They went and said, these Gentiles are believing and, and they're trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. And remember, the, some of the Jews were saying, but they've got to be circumcised. They've got to follow all the Jewish tradition. And so Peter and Paul, they ended up at the Jerusalem council. And there in Acts 15, we see the one who seems to be the leader in the church at Jerusalem is none other than James. And after they gave their report, it was James who came back and commented on what had been said. And so we see that James was obviously one who was part of the church in Jerusalem, a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And then also we find in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul referred to James and the others as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. That means they had standing there. Something else about this particular James, the brother of, half-brother of Jesus, the historian Eusebius, in describing uh, one event, it says, James used to enter the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people. So much so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God kneeling down before the Lord. You see, because of his prayer life, James had the reputation. Some historians said they called him old what? Camel knees. Old camel knees because he spent so much time on his knees praying, kneeling before the Lord. Let me ask you something. From a spiritual perspective, what would people call you and me based on our spiritual disciplines? Would they refer to us in that terms that because we spend so much time, we have a reputation of being a people of prayer or people of the book? Ultimately, James, after serving so many faithful years and being a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, in 62 AD, it's recorded that he was martyred. He was martyred at the hands of his own countrymen by the orders given by Sadducean high priest named Annas. 
Historians say he was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple. When he hit the ground, he survived. But a mob rushed upon him as he raced to his knees, including some of the Pharisees. They came and they beat him to death to make sure he was dead. Why? Because of his stand and because of his faith in Jesus Christ. It was said by historian Eusebius that I, James prayed these, similar to these words, I beg you, Lord, to God our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Sound familiar? Similar to what Stephen prayed, following what the Lord Jesus himself prayed. So that is the man, that is James. That is who we have this wonderful letter, this convicting letter that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. But what about the character of the book itself? What about this book that we're going to look closely at over the next several months? First of all, the character of James's letter it carries with it the fact that this is believed to be the earliest of the New Testament books. Remember, the New Testament is not in chronological order. You do know that. It's not in chronological order. Matthew wasn't written, then Mark, then Luke, then John, then Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It doesn't follow, follow chronology. But we have the Gospels, we have the book of history, we have the epistles, we have the book of prophecy, but they're not in chronological order. So this is believed to be the earliest of the New Testament books, written around 44, 49 AD. Here's something interesting about the book of James. It has approximately 108 verses. 59 of those verses are imperatives. You know what an imperative is, right? A command. A directive. 59 of the 108, half of the book of James is made up of imperatives, commands for us. James shows a, a close relation in some of his writings to the Sermon on the Mount, which he should know the Sermon on the Mount. After all, his half-brother gave the Sermon on the Mount. But there are 15, at least 15 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. There are also several parallels, if you haven't noticed already, to the book of Proverbs. James, as a good Jew, would have known the, the Proverbs. And the theme of this book, and you could come up, and you may come up with your own, and that's great. I encourage you, as you read through a book of the Bible, is you learn to develop, what, understand what the theme of the book is. What is the author trying to say? What does the Holy Spirit want us to know from this book? And some have said that the theme of, of James is that genuine faith should make a difference in the way that we live. And we know the verse that, that comes up to James, we think about it often. In fact, Martin Luther thought the book of James should not even be in the canon. It should not even be in the Bible because it gave too much focus on works. But you know the verse in, in James that most people are familiar with. The faith without works is dead. And so a lot of the book of James deals with putting our faith into action. There are two primary reasons why we should study the book of James. To understand the relationship between faith and works. How, does our, how do our works and our faith work together? And then we also understand that throughout James, one of the other things we should, reason we should study it is because of those 59 commands. If we want to be a people who obey the Word of God, we need to understand that obedience is everywhere in James. And we understand that genuine, true faith really works. We study James to explore the impact that our faith has upon our life. 
How can we say we're a people of faith and it not impact how we live, what we do, what we say, how we behave, how we, how we interact in, in marriage, how we raise our families, how we communicate in church? Throughout James, you'll see these practical issues dealing with trials next week. Hold on to your seats, those of you that are going through trials right now. What's the very next verse? I lied to you. I said we're just going to read one verse. The second verse says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. You're going through a trial right now. James says, count it all joy. Because God will use those trials to do something great in your life. James deals with poverty. He deals with riches, materialism, favoritism, justice, the tongue. Ooh, that may get interesting. Worldliness, boasting, making plans without praying, and praying itself how we're to treat the sick, how we're to treat a sinning brother or sister. He deals with all of this. You see, folks, our faith should move us to take steps of radical obedience to the Word and the things of God. If our faith does not lead us to, to make radical steps in obeying the gospel, then our faith isn't worth much. We need to be a people of faith, but a people who react to that faith in obedience. So now let's look at the introduction to James. That one verse that I find to be very rich, and I don't think we can go any further in the book of James without first dealing with what James says about himself. It's interesting that James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother Jesus, did not use him his I'm the brother of Jesus card. He also didn't use his, I'm a pillar in the Jerusalem church card. He didn't say, look at me, look at who I am, look at my pedigree. He didn't say, look at my position. But instead, notice what he says of himself. James, a servant, a slave, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't move beyond that this morning without addressing what he says here. He says he was a slave to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important that we understand what that says. Some of your translations, in fact, most English translations translate this, I, I, James, a servant of the Lord, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Only a few translations translate this the way it really, I believe, should be, according to the Greek, and that is, I'm a slave or a bondservant. You see, what we've done in our English translations, we've softened this. And you may not like this this morning, but we, we've softened the, the word servant because we don't like to talk about slaves. We don't like to talk about being submissive to another. We don't like to talk about someone else being our master because we are so independent. But James literally says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I believe is the best translation of this word, doulos. The Greek word for slave has been covered up by mistranslated almost every English version, going back to the King James and even before that, the Geneva Bible, which translated it servant. The word slave appears 124 times in the original text. However, it's only translated slave once in the old King James Version. 
That doesn't mean the King James Version is bad. It just means that it's probably not, in this case, give us the best understanding of the word. Remember, that, that was written in 1611 English. And over a period of about 200 years was edited about 30,000 times. So some of you that think you're holding the 1611 King James, you're gravely mistaken. In fact, you could not read the 1611 King James. It would make no sense to you. And so there are times when words like this are translated, we can find a better translation, and this is one of those. The New Testament use of the Greek word doulos is, is very similar. To, it talks about physical slavery, yes, but it also applied to believers, denoting the relationship. At least 40 times in the New Testament, we find this speaking of a believer's relationship to God. 30 plus times in the New Testament, the language of doulos is used to teach truths about the Christian life, how we respond, how we to live. In the book of, Revel of the Revelation, it's mentioned at least five times talking about those of us who would be with Jesus as being his servants, as, as being his slaves. And the Hebrew word for slave is ebed and can speak literally of a, an earthly master, a human master, but metaphorically, in the Old Testament, it's used 250 times denoting one's duty and privilege to obey God. And so this is a good word. This is a good Bible word, a good a word for us to grab hold of. And this is a word that's so interesting that James would choose to call himself a slave rather than a pillar, rather than the brother of Jesus. He would say, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to my God, and I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friend, the gospel is not simply an invitation to become Jesus' associate. It's an invitation to become his slave, to call him master and no other. That is what Christianity is about. That's what the gospel is about. We come saying, you are master, you are king, and I submit to you. Early church fathers even used this term and thought highly of this term in describing the Christian life. Around 110 A.D., a man by the name of Ignatius, he said and described co-workers and fellow believers as fellow slaves of Christ. Polycarp, who died a martyr, instructed the Philippians to bind up your loose robes and serve as God's slaves in fear and in truth. The shepherd of Hermas, written about the second century, warns readers, there are many wicked deeds from which the slave of God must refrain. And then Augustine, who you've probably heard of, says, does your Lord not deserve to have you as his trustworthy slave? We have a benevolent master. We have a master who will always has our best at, at heart. But a master who's also stern when it comes to obedience. A master who wants us to obey him and walk in love relationship with him. As we see, not only in a, from a human perspective, but a spiritual perspective, there are some characteristics of being a slave that we should give attention to. One is, is what we might call exclusive ownership. Is that as our master, that we have one who we serve. One that we belong to wholly and completely. In Titus 2.14, it says, we are a people for his own possession. Not association, but possession. 
In Galatians 5.24, it says that we belong to Christ Jesus. Colossians 4.1 says that we have a master in heaven. And we find in Revelation 3.12, Jesus saying, I will write the name of, of he, my God, and his name will be on our foreheads. In Hebrew culture, to write the name of anything upon anything was common and figurative expression of ownership and belonging. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, we are not our own. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, he says, glorify God in your body. But not only is there ownership, but there's also submission. Notice what James said. He said, I am a slave to God and who? Not my half-brother, Jesus Christ, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. The submission to the Lordship of Christ. And as a slave of Christ, we are like Jesus who said, not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, have your will and your way in my life. There's also devotion. We're told in 1 John 3, to keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Paul's words to the Corinthians were these, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. You see folks, we, we are about, we're either about pleasing ourselves, or we're about pleasing others, or we're about pleasing our master. I think too many times we're more concerned about the first two and we're not as concerned about the last. Then there's total dependence. You see, slave owners were responsible to care for their slaves. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not be anxious about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. For your heavenly Father knows about this. He knows these things. But Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our benevolent master will meet our needs. He will care for us. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious about nothing, but in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to the Lord. He knows your need. He knows our needs. And he will care for us. And fifth and finally is loving obedience. You see, a hard attitude that works itself out in obedience to him is the defining mark of a Christian. We, how do we say we're, we're a follower of Christ and we don't obey him? The Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And he goes on to say in that passage, for if anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. How much more clear can we get? We say we follow Jesus, we say we love Jesus, but if we don't obey him, we're liars and the truth is not in us. Obedience marks a believer. The Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren said this, the true position then for a man is to be God's slave. He says absolute submission, unconditional obedience on the slave's part. And on the part of the master, complete ownership and love. You see, being a disciple of Jesus entails a life of self-denial, 
of humble disposition toward others, of wholehearted devotion to the master alone, a willingness to obey his commands and do and go where he says go, an eagerness to serve him even in his absence, and a motivation that comes from knowing that God is well pleased. So what is the second thing he says there? Not only does he deal with himself being a slave, He says, I'm a slave to God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is not his proper name. Those are titles. Lord describing his position as God. Jesus, earthly name that means Savior. Christ is his messianic name, that he is Messiah. He is the promised one. So James could have easily said, I am a servant, a slave to God, and of my half-brother, who happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what he says. He brings none of that into play. All he says is, I am a slave to God and to my Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it ironic that he grew up in the house with him? That he saw him? He knows him? But now it's not just as his brother not just the son of his mother Mary, or brother of his mother Mary, but now he is Jesus. He is Lord. He is Jesus, the Savior. He is the promised Messiah that the Jews had been looking for. That's who he is. This word Lord is the word kurios, used 750 times in the New Testament. Its fundamental meaning is master, owner. And kurios and doulos are two sides of a similar coin because the kurios must have doulos. And every doulos has a kurios. Every master has a slaves, but all slaves must have a master. And we serve him as master, as savior, as lord. Thus, to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess him as our master. And I recall a time of visiting with a, a lady in, on a Monday night, going to her home and sharing the gospel. And she came from another denomination, another background, but she'd been visiting our church and wanted to join. And, and I, was just the, I was just the student pastor leading a team that was training in evangelism. We went to her house and went in there, and, and I thought, man, I am doing such a great job of sharing the gospel with this woman. And, and I was, had this confidence that, that she's going to ex- receive Christ as Savior and Lord of her life. And so I went through the clarification of the gospel and what it meant to commit your life to Christ. I said, are you willing to receive Jesus Christ as a resurrected and living Savior, that he's alive today? He died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Are you willing today to, to turn from sin and turn to Christ alone, put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? Yes. Are you, are you really willing to... To, to trust Jesus as the only Savior, the only way, truth, and the life to the Father? Yes. One last question. Are you willing to submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life? No, I'm not. You see, she did not want a master. She did not want a Lord She wanted a savior, she wanted fire insurance, but she didn't want to follow Jesus as the Lord and master of her life. 
I remember the emptiness that I felt walking out of that woman's house. I prayed for her. I prayed that she would one day come to that place where she could trust Christ as the Lord of her life. And I shared with her, you know, please come back to church. We'd love to, you know, keep coming to Sunday school, Bible study, and, and all that, and, and had a good departure. We walked out, and the woman never came back to our church again after that. I still think about her. That did she breathe her last, still being the master of her own life? You see, Jesus as Lord is our confession. We confess with our mouth Jesus as what? Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. With the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. Romans 10, 9 and 10. We should have learned that in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. I remember going through a, a time when, when people were saying, uh, you don't need to receive Jesus as Lord. You can just accept him as Savior, and then one day later you make him Lord of your life. Well, there's a couple things wrong with that. That's not biblical. But secondly, no one makes Jesus Lord. No one is in control of him. No one says, Jesus, okay, now you can be Lord of my life. We come to Christ as Savior. We die to self. We acknowledge that he is Lord. In Acts 2.36, Paul, Peter in his, his sermon said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Not just Savior, but Lord. Who did that? God did that. The Father did that. Luke 6, 46 says, and why do you call me, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I do? You see, a lot of people are real good about giving lip service to Jesus. And they call him Lord, but they don't live that way. In Colossians 3, 17, Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to the Father. We could go on and on about this meaning. And somebody said, do you believe in lordship salvation? I said, I don't know of any other. Jesus has to be Lord or he's not Savior. And so I submit to him as the Lord of my life. If I'm unwilling to do that, I'm unwilling to follow him as Savior. You see, for a long time we have had this idea and we've taught people, oh, you just come and accept him as Savior and then later on in life you give him really control of your life. That's unbiblical. That's contrary to what the scripture teaches. And so therefore what we do is we have a lot of people that says, well, I got my fire insurance, but one day in the future, one day in the future, I'm gonna surrender everything to Jesus. And I'm gonna walk an aisle, rededicate my life and say, now Jesus is Lord. I remember sitting in a, a, a evening, a Wednesday evening, and we had a man from a very well-known organization that uh, puts out magazines related to the Christian faith from around the world. And he got up and began to share his testimony. Beside me was a, a 85, I think he was 85-year-old. He was on our staff as, as our pastoral minister. He had been a faithful pastor but had nothing left. And, and we brought him on, a very wise man. And Howard was sitting there beside me, and we talked, and, and I loved Howard. He was something else. And this man shared his testimony. He said, you know, I walked an aisle, and when I was a child, nine or ten years old, I, I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart, and I was baptized. But for, you know, for the next 20 years, I lived like hell. But then one day, I made Jesus Lord of my life. 
Oh, I was a Christian before. But this day I made Jesus Lord of my life. I turned to Howard and I said, Howard, what do you think? And Howard in his great wisdom said, I don't think he knows when he got saved. You see, folks, to have the idea that we can just take what we want from Jesus without surrendering, without dying, without submitting ourselves to him is a misnomer. It's antithetical to what the Scripture teaches. He is both Lord and he is both Savior. You don't separate the two. That's why Jesus in Matthew 7, he said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, the Lordship was reflected in obedience. So we see James. We understand something about this man, this great martyr, this pillar in the church of Jerusalem, this slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see who he wrote to, the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. This phrase, he wrote to the scattered church, is who he wrote to. We find in Acts chapter 8, after the martyrdom of Stephen, the church in Jerusalem scattered. Where did it go? Judea and Samaria. What does Acts 1.8 say? Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most part of the earth. What do we learn here? Yes, it started in Jerusalem. But with the persecution of Stephen, the church scattered and believers went to Judea and Samaria. Later in Acts, they would go to the ends of the earth, to other places. And so he writes to these believers who have a Jewish background. And even today, the diaspora, we refer to it as a diaspora, those who live outside of their own country. And so here in our country, we have a diaspora of many different peoples. But here is speaking about the diaspora of believers who were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and eventually all of the Mediterranean. And he writes to them as they face trials, as they learn to fight temptation, which we'll get to in a few weeks. So as we begin this study, we must first make a precise and honest evaluation of our own spiritual lives. And so I want to close with these five statements. Number one, have we been born again? James wrote to believers. Without that understanding, it's going to be difficult for us to apply this to our life if we're not believers. Number two, we are to examine our lives in light of God's Word. What does God's Word say? Not what we think, not what we, we believe. What does God's Word say? Third, we must be willing to obey God no matter the cost. We'll learn to be doers, not hearers. Fourth, we must acknowledge and be prepared for trials and difficulties. If you're not going through a trial, you will be eventually. Isn't that good news? If you're not going through it right now, you will go through it. And we need to be prepared. And fifth and finally, we must measure our spiritual growth by the metrics we find in the Word of God and nothing else. Not by comparing ourselves to other Christians, not by comparing ourselves to other churches, but by the metrics that were found in God's Word. That's how we measure our spiritual growth. So making an honest evaluation, where are we? Where do we need to be? And James will give us some instruction 
about that in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, let it be said of us that we are your slaves, your bondservants. That we serve you, we obey you out of a heart of love. Not out of obligation, but out of love. Father, I pray this morning that if there's somebody in this room that has never received Jesus Christ as Savior, both Savior and Lord of their life, that today would be that day. Dying to self. Receiving Jesus and what he did on the cross and what he did in rising from the dead to provide eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. And submitting to him as Lord, Master, King. For there's no greater Master And Father, for all of us who have already done that, all of us who've already been born again, may we look at our lives and may your word be the mirror that we look into. And may we be honest with where we are and where we need to be. Father, in this time of invitation, pray that you would speak to our hearts continually through the Holy Spirit, that he would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that he would lead us into what we need to do to be obedient to you this morning. Jesus name. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, visit us at nbbchurch.org.